0: Great, well thanks so much for that kind introduction and and thanks to Kappa for hosting this this event
1: and thanks to you all for sticking around to the bitter end here. Um, So over the past few years at at Princeton I've conducted three related lines of research all focused on the family as a mechanism in the production of race, class, and gender inequalities. The first line of this work has looked at how gender structures the allocation of time and resources in households and so for instance I've looked at how women's earning shares in married couples structure who does housework in American families Or at how women's earnings as a share of household income structures expenditures on food and alcohol in the South African context. A second line of related work looks at how low income families save and manage funds. And here I focus particularly on the kind of interventions that might help the poor to save and build assets, and so lessen asset poverty and reduce wealth inequality. And the third strand of my work, the focus of my dissertation research, looks at the role of economic factors, particularly wealth in some pronounced changes in American marriage over the past several decades. So let me start by just laying out these trends which I think all of you probably have some sense of. They're very much in the news over the last several months. This chart shows the share of men in blue and women in gray who have never married by the relatively young ages of 22 to 27, across decades, drawing data from census and other sources. And what we see is that from the low point in the 1960s, that share has risen. Listen, this is evidence suggestive of a delay in marriage entry, that people now may be marrying later, certainly fewer of them have ever married at these relatively young ages, or we really consider to be relatively young now. But there's also some evidence that's suggestive of less marriage. This chart again shows the share of men in blue and women in gray who have never married, here at the relatively older ages of 50 to 54. These shares, 10 or 12% for men and women, again, increasing in recent decades, are suggested that larger shares of Americans may now never marry. Make no mistake, most Americans will marry but larger shares may now never marry than before and certainly people are marrying later. The demographic change that I think is most pronounced and that I want to draw your attention to tonight though is increasing stratification in American marriage. This chart shows for men on the left and women on the right by race, comparing blacks in the gray line and whites in the blue line for ages 22 to 27 that have never married. And here what we see is a rather remarkable divergence, particularly in the most recent, laser pointer, years. And so here we see that in recent decades, the share of blacks who have never married at these relatively young ages is much larger than for their white counterparts. This isn't just about a racial difference in delay in marriage. There seems to be real evidence of a racial difference in decline in marriage. And so here we see the share for men and women, again by race, who have never married at these relatively older ages of 50 to 54. And what this really is of is that relatively large shares of black men and black women may never marry, much higher than those of their white counterparts. So I put it to you that these changes, and we might see similar stratification by education as well, matter for a couple reasons. The first is that this marks a pretty significant shift in an important American social institution. Marriage, while still widespread, has changed in these fundamental ways. It is later, it is less common, and it is increasingly stratified by race as well as by education. But this also matters because it has implications for inequality. A large body of social scientific research in sociology, demography, economics, suggests that marriage has important benefits for children in in academic domains, in mental health and health outcomes, in behavioral outcomes. And while there's been a vigorous causal debate over whether this is real or spurious, the weight of some careful um, quasi-experimental studies suggest that this marriage effect is real. And so what we have then is the potential that if we really see less and later marriage among the already disadvantage, as we saw marked by race in the prior graph, and evidence that marriage can have important benefits for children, well then there's a potential to, to set more firmly patterns of disadvantage and inequality across generations through this mechanism of the family. And so for this reason, there's been an awful lot of work on this topic. This gentleman is William Julius Wilson, and he is the author of some of the, sort of the canonical work in sociology on the black-white marriage gap. He suggests that part of what's going on here is a shortage of marriageable men in African-American communities. A hollowing out of urban labor markets deprives men of the opportunity for stable employment and regular income, and essentially the, the, the characteristics that make them marriageable. And this shortage of the men brought about by these changes in the structure of the American economy, these, these changes to labor markets, really help us to understand why we then see a change in this social institution, in marriage. The contrasting perspective, and I, and I pick on Charles Murray only because he's put himself out there in innumerable columns over the last several months, is a cultural one. That what we see is the emergence of a cultural divide, in his case he's focusing between more and less educated or working and professional class whites, but here the argument is that marriage has become devalued by a segment of society that this group no longer values marriage and no longer simply no longer aspires to it and so what we see here is the emergence of a cultural divide that explains this marital divide what I want to do today is to begin to present and examine some empirical evidence around the third way and this I think is most clearly presented by Andy Cherland a sociologist at Hopkins and Cherland argues that there has been cultural change. It's not been a devaluing of marriage so much as a revaluing of marriage, a change in the social meaning of marriage. that whereas marriage was once one of the first events in the life course on the path to adulthood, marriage is now a cul- culminating event. That after one has achieved economically, demonstrated financial arrival, that's when one marries. Marriage is a capstone to this adulthood experience. And with that, Treven argues, and it manifested there is the sense that wealth now matters for marriage in a way it might not have in these more recent past decades. That now people want to wait to marry, not just to have a stable job and a regular income, but to have some money saved in the bank, to own a car, and to even own a home. That these are the visible accoutrements of financial success and arrival that are now prerequisites of marriage, now part of the marriage bar. And this is where, in Trillian's explanation, culture runs into structure. Because in American society, wealth is deeply unequally held, And stratified by race and by education and so here we see that if the meaning of marriage has changed not to devalue it but to shift it to be to happen after one has already achieved these economic markers of success and given that these markers of success are so unequally available well then perhaps we see both a structural and a cultural account that can help us to explain and understand some of these marital divides and indeed there's been some ethnographic and qualitative work in depth interviews time spent with young low-income and working class men and women in cities across the US. And what this work suggests is that young people say that they want to marry, that they value marriage, but in line with children's suggestions, they're waiting to marry until they have some money saved, until they feel more financially stable. Some money saved in the bank, owning a car, even owning a home, the white picket fence dream, the middle class ideal, whatever whatever we might call it, that this is a widely held standard of wealth before marriage. Wealth is part of the marriage bar. So what I wanna do today is to basically make two demographic inquiries. While the prior literature has been mostly ethnographic and qualitative, let's look at some larger scale data and try to use that data to assess to what extent is wealth really connected to entry into marriage, and then given that wealth is so uniquely distributed in the U.S., and I'll focus here on the roughly five to one ratio of white wealth to black wealth in the U.S., can accounting for wealth help to explain some of these divides that we saw in marriage in those prior graphs? So to do that, I'm gonna draw data from the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, 79. This is a really neat longitudinal study that followed about 12,600 young men and women born in the late 50s, early 60s, um, over the decades, interviewing them every year, every two years, through to the present. And in this data, I'll use information on entry into first marriage as a function of the ownership of four simple measures of assets. Ownership of a home, of a car, of financial savings, and of other assets. And because we want to try to hone in on assets that are separate from other economic and family background and social characteristics, we'll control for or adjust for a host of time invariant and time varying measures that are available in this rich data source. So let's first ask what is the association between wealth and first marriage? And what I'm going to present are are some simple descriptive graphs of the relationship between owning any one of these four key assets versus none and the risk or hazard of marriage, and this is language borrowed from the modeling of death. So think of marriage here as death, and think of the hazard or risk of marriage as entering into marriage as dying, um, <laughs> but good. So what we have here for men on top and women on bottom is you know, this sort of clear, unsurprising, perhaps descriptive evidence that those who own these four key assets, one of these four key assets or more, have a higher risk of first marriage at any given age than those who lack these assets for both men and women. We can adjust for those characteristics we talked about earlier. Perhaps this is just about employment or income, religion, family background. So we adjust for those. And what we see then, and, and the dots represent a point estimate from an event history model, and, and, and the gray bars, the confidence interval around that. What we see for men is some evidence that owning a car is positively related to the risk of entering into first marriage at any given age, raising the risk by about 50% over their non car owning peers. That having some financial savings, just having some money in the bank, as many, but not all Americans do, raises that risk as well for men. For women, the story is similar but slightly different. Call ownership also matters, as does the ownership of other assets. And that's another I can't unpack terribly well, unfortunately. Okay, so we see a relationship between wealth and first marriage, but we know that these assets are not equally held across the population. And in this data and any data you turn to, blacks are far less likely to own these key assets than their white counterparts. Can accounting for that kind of gap in wealth ownership? Help us to explain some of the gap we see in marriage entry by race. So what these two bars show are the difference in the risk of marriage at any given age for black men and black women relative to their white counterparts and so it was a, a bar that didn't uh, extend from zero would be no difference. This is un- adjusting only for age. In the second model we'll add in these adjustments for labor market characteristics for for welfare receipt for school enrollment for education and doing so, we see it, it shrinks that black disadvantage somewhat for men by about 20% as it does for women. In the third model, we'll just include these four simple measures of asset ownership, of a home, of a car, financial savings, and of other assets. And we see that doing so does some, way, does some ways towards further diminishing this black-white gap in marriage, shrinking the, the male disadvantage by about 30% over the estimates from Model 2 for men, but not really having much of an effect for women. So it seems here that, that it's men's assets in particular and the differences in black men and white men's ownership of assets that really have some role to play in explaining some of these, but not all of these disparities in marriage entry. So so far I focused on a sort of demographic accounting of this argument. But I think a key part of this argument is, is the cultural piece. This is culture running into structure. So here we have some structure. But I think we might also ask to what extent. Is this really about a unique cultural meaning of marriage? And to what extent is this just about, you know, before entering into a long term coalescent relationship with someone, you want to see that they're sort of well situated, that they have some savings on the car, these sorts of things. So I think we can get some leverage on this with a, with a sort of crit- critical comparison. If this is really the case that wealth matters for marriage because marriage has this unique cultural value in which you want to have economically arrived before marrying now, well, then we should see that wealth is related to entering into marriage but not into some other co-residential relationship. That wealth matters for marriage, but not for cohabitation. And so to try to look at this, I use data from a second source, the Fathered Families and Child Wellbeing Study. This is a, a great study has here at Princeton in the Office of Population Research. Uh, Sarah McClanahan is one of the PIs. Um, and it follows the parents and children, um, the parents of children born between 98 and 2000 in large U.S. cities, mostly focusing on unmarried parents. And with a follow-up, over nine years following the birth, and we include in this survey a a number of rich covariates, including data on whether these unmarried parents who were unmarried at birth subsequently entered into cohabitation or into marriage, and whether they owned these three key assets of a home, car, or bank account. And so if we look then to see what extent is the ownership of these assets related to cohabitation versus marriage, what we see is not much evidence of any relationship between these assets and entry into cohabitation. Owning a car, a home, bank account, it doesn't seem to really matter whether or not they, a couple has this if they go on, to, marry, go on to, to live together. But having these things really does matter for whether they're going to marry and that's in real contrast. So we see that men owning a car, a bank account, or a home increases the relative risk of entering into marriage but not cohabitation. That women owning a car or a home increases the risk of entering into marriage but not cohabitation. While indirect, This evidence does, I think, point to some ways in which marriage does have this unique cultural value, which is manifest in the relationship between wealth and marriage. So to sum up a bit, we have this sort of third-way explanation, the sense that there may be a way in which marriage has changed, not to devalue it for Americans, but to revalue it, to change its social meaning, and that a piece of that is that wealth, stocks of assets, not just the flows of income, matter for marriage now in a way they didn't in the recent past. And we see evidence of that here in this demographic data and evidence also that the inequalities in wealth in American society may help to explain some of that same stratification by race and then results have been presented by education in American marriage. And then finally, some suggested using these similar methods, these demographic methods, of a unique cultural value of marriage as opposed to other forms of co-residence. Thanks very much.
0: That's great, thank you
1: for the microphone. Okay. Questions?
0: Okay, differences between blacks and whites, uh, how that, how those differences might affect whether or not they they've been married or whether they're going to get married ever. isn't it true that blacks in this country uh, have lower, have poorer health than whites? And in general, on average, they're, is the, they're more obese, or the, the, the percentage of obesity is higher in blacks. I mean, isn't there quite a discrepancy between the two races in health status? And couldn't that explain to a little bit anyway as to whether whether a black person might want to get married, I mean, say a black person himself or herself is in poor health, or the person looks around and many other blacks are in poor health, the person might decide, hey, I don't want to get married. What's the point of getting married? In
1: terms, of, thanks.
0: So I think that the, I think you
1: know there's sort of a dual hypothesis there. One is that why, why marry? someone who's in poor health, what a burden to take on. Another is I myself with them, you know poor health. Um, and so I can't speak to the, to the evidence on, on these disparities in health, although they're well, they're well known. I don't have the, the specific numbers at my fingertips. But I think what you point to is, is a viable hypothesis, and, but also evidence in the same way that wealth might operate of this sort of cyclical nature of these disadvantages, right? Because I buy that, and I think there's evidence that suggests that, that, health is ne- that bad health is negative related to entry into marriage. Um, But it's also the case that marriage can confer some health benefits, particularly for men. Not not so much for women, but for men in marriage. And so there we could see a sort sort of similar cycle to wealth. In the same way that wealth may be connected to marriage, and marriage actually helps people to build assets, the research suggests. And so there we see a, a sort of cycle of disadvantage, cumulative disadvantage. For health we might see a similar argument. If those who are unhealthy are less likely to enter marriage, and marriage can throw some health benefits, they miss out on that, and in turn, you know, accumulate that disadvantage. So I think it's a viable alternative. We can control for it in these models, um, and, and it doesn't go that far towards diminishing the, this wealth um, effect. But but you know, I think it, I think it may speak to similar processes at work, or could be at work there. Uh, have you found that the tax code? Uh, Related to state and income tax, has any effect on marriage? It you know, was not something I've looked at directly, um, but I know it's been a, a topic of some debate whether there's a, a disincentive or incentive to marry in, in the tax code. People have looked in a very contentious literature at the incentives that are built into public support, um, to TANF and AFTC um, rules, and the AATC as an element of the tax code as well, and there's been really mixed evidence there on how will people respond to that. Um, in some ways there's an economic model that suggests there could be a response and then there's the practical model of how much people know about how the tax burden would change if they were to marry and if they then act accordingly on that. Uh, and also, that I haven't looked at it directly.
0: Do you think with the increase of people having the, uh, these objects of value now before they get married rather than get married and then earn them together as a couple, and the increase in the divorce rate, uh, are more people likely to go into their relationships with a prenuptial agreement to protect their assets that they had before they came in?
1: I mean, one thing that emerges in this qualitative and ethnographic work I pointed to is is women talking about how they want to have assets of their own before marriage. And these are poor people, honestly. And they may have some assets, but it's not much. It's not the kind of assets we imagine protecting with a prenuptial. But it may be the kind of assets that are still held separately And entering marriage and that provide a buffer uh, against the shocks that we know divorce delivers to women in particular. And so it may be that it's not so much a bargaining chip to avoid divorce as an insurance policy against the hazards of divorce. Um, But I'm not sure it maps onto prenups, particularly for, for, for most Americans. Uh, so two kind of related questions. One, um, why do assets in hand seem to, or why do you think assets in hand seem to matter more than earnings potential? Right? It, economists might tend to kind of counter that by saying that earnings potential has a kind of net present right. value of some you know, quantifiable amount that should in some ways be kind of equivalent to assets. That's another. right. And um, my other question is what about debt? What about the kind of rise of, of personal uh, educational debt among young people? I mean, is this, where does that kind of play into this story? Great. Um, so the first question is that, you know, you, I'm focusing on a very narrow kind of asset, on financial assets, financial capital, That's distinct from human capital, which we think that would be really important because that sort of promises over a longer term horizon. Um, then this, you know, very small amounts of assets which may come and go in a sense. They may be far less permanent than the human capital that people accumulate. And I think one way to think about this is to just crudely split our population into two bits, highly educated and less educated. And for less educated people, I think you can see an argument for why financial, having financial assets might be a distinguishing characteristic. Because there some education, some training, it may matter, but this is a hazardous economy. One in which you can't be counted on to hold the job that you have, even with you know a certificate or training. You know, there's a fair amount of income volatility there and assets make a may cushion against that and that may be why assets have come to take on the symbolic value. But then we can also look at this other group, th- those who are highly educated. And it's certainly true that education has a powerful effect on marriage, increasingly so. So for men there was always the case that more education was positively associated with marriage and that, that that's now true for women as well at, at, in sort of recent, in very recent years in, in a way. Uh, and there it may be that it's that assets do matter, but what's conspicuous is not having these basic assets. So if you're highly educated and you still don't have a bank account and a little money saved, like something is not right. It it is a culturally valued asset, but the value is in its presence and and conspicuous in its absence for this group, Um, and, and that may be one way to think about it. Second question was about the role of debt, and I think that's real. This is data for people who are marrying mostly in the 80s maybe the early 90s, and student loan debt, which I think looms very large, is, is a order of magnitude less um, for these folks coming through. And I, and I think it would be very real if we were to sort of get the next cohort, or really three cohorts on um, from the folks I'm looking at here. And there's been a couple papers that have tried to look at debt in that way. It's important what kind of debt you look at, because if you look at the debt on a car, it looks positively associated with marriage, because it got you a car. But if you look at and maybe if you look like at student loan debt, it's probably associated unless you, you need to carefully net out education, but maybe credit card debt, not unless it got you some really nice stuff. Um, so I think it, it's, it's trickier than we think, but I, but I think you know, if you were able to measure
0: everything right, it's gotta be true.
1: And I think it's more true now. Uh,
0: you, you began the, the discussion by saying that there was a real social benefit to marriage that, that's been measured and it's not really in dispute. And then and and then you went on to talk about the issues of uh, why people aren't or they're, they're getting married later or they're not they're, they're they're not getting married at all and the reason for that is they don't have the wealth, so the the question then ha- is obviously what <laughs> what do you do as a as a social practitioner to try to fix that are are you saying we should go back to the dowry or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Inadvertently, people may have done it themselves. Um, uh, so I think it's a really hard question. Um, you know What we have done so far, and what I think people have pushed back against, is the interventions on marriage have been to convince people they should get married, and that marriage is really worthwhile. And my work doesn't show this, but it builds on the work that suggests that that's really not what you need to do. That people are well convinced. They want to get married, they just perceive barriers to it. And so marriage education, as marriage Promotion may not be the right policy. Okay, so, so then what is if we buy this assets-based work? I mean, one might suggest that it's asset-building initiatives, right? This has been a, a budding field over the last 25 years, Interventions designed to help the poor to save. Get people banked, provide incentives in, in tax code, in, in, in match savings, um, encourage buying savings bonds more recently, and other innovative financial products that we think might help people to save, and maybe if they save then, know marriage would feel more possible and I think there's maybe a case to be made for that but the risk for that though is that that presumes a world in which it's sort of there's a, there's a rationality to why assets matter for marriage it might just be that if we got everybody some assets it would no longer be the distinguishing characteristic that marks the marriageable from the unmarriageable and we would move right on to something else um, it's hard to know I mean an experiment won't tell you that right you can't just do an experiment where you give some people some wealth and some people not, because you haven't changed the social reality. You've only changed a narrow control and treatment reality. Um, so I don't know how we know that. But you might just say, well, that's OK. We should just go ahead with these asset building missions anyway. But, you know. can solve
0: those at Berkeley, the oranges. let <laughs> 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 Let's thank Daniel. Thank you.